They don't make compelling television footage, but immigration hearings are an important component of the system that's so distressing to the nation today. The people who actually conduct the hearings say they're struggling with the technology that is supposed to support them, the pandemic, and what they say are efforts to decertify their union. For more, we turn to the president of the National Association of Immigration Judges, Mimi Sankoff. Ms. Sankoff, good to have you on. Thank you so much. I am appearing here in my capacity as the president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. So the comments that I'm making are really in that capacity, and they are not in any way a reflection of the position of the Department of Justice. Let's begin with what you perceive as an effort to decertify the union. What is going on now? What's the status here? Well, what's what's been really troubling is dating back to 2018, the Department of Justice did seek to decertify the union. And they took steps by filing a motion with the Federal Labor Relations Authority. That went through a process that culminated in a in a full hearing with a regional director of the Federal Labor Relations Authority, finding that, in fact, the immigration judges are not management officials, so they are eligible to unionize. That case went up to the Federal Labor Relations Authority, the full full FLRA board, and that is the more political wing of the FLRA. That entity overturned the RD's position and sought to remand the matter to the regional director. But we also saw a change in administration. And now that matter is still pending a motion for reconsideration. So the immigration judges are still in limbo. We are facing a labor-friendly Department of Justice and administration And yet we're still in this limbo waiting to see what's going to happen to us. And have you had any consultation with the administrative law judges that work for Social Security? Because they've been dealing back and forth with similar issues now for quite a number of years. We've been working with our sister organization, the SSA judges, for years now. And they are very supportive of our efforts to fight this decertification. But despite all of our best efforts and our efforts on Capitol Hill as well, And through our um, parent organization, the IFPTE, none of that yet has rendered a resolution to this matter. So we are on pins and needles waiting for a result. And is your situation overlaid by contract negotiations also, as well as just basic status of the union? The challenge that we're facing is that while we have a contract, the Department of Justice is not recognizing our contract. So until they do, we will not even be able to engage in contract negotiations. We have a pending motion to um, engage in midterm bargaining, still no result there from the Department of Justice. And just for purposes of reference, how many are there of you nationwide and what is the uh, typical caseload? We have about 500 non-supervisory managerial immigration judges. Those are the trial judges that are actively hearing cases. And of our docket, in terms of our docket, we have about 1.4 million cases in the backlog right now. Judges are hearing cases in their courtrooms all day, every day throughout the country. And still we are barely scratching the surface as the as to the caseload that we have pending. Wow. And you said in your courtrooms, does that mean virtually now or what's the status of the hearings physically vis-a-vis the pandemic? It's a combination of all of those. Some of the judges are hearing cases and have been for throughout the pandemic in their courtrooms. Some have been hearing cases virtually. Some are, there are a few. It's a new rolled out program where some immigration judges are being afforded digital audio recording enabled laptops and they're holding 
hearings from their telework locations and doing so through WebEx. I would think that that might even be the preferable mode of conducting these, since the immigrants coming into the country that are subject to hearings could be anywhere vis-a-vis where it is they entered the country. And so wouldn't it be perhaps a better way just to assign the cases from wherever the particular immigrant is rather than having them go to a courtroom that could be hundreds of miles away? It certainly has an efficiency-compelling element, but as you know, cases are really not, the focus is not always just on efficiency. It has to always balance the due process concerns. So many respondents are worried that something will be lost in a video video access to the hearings. And we certainly are mindful of that. But as you note, we're in the middle of a pandemic and more so now than we were maybe just even a, fun, a few months ago with this new Delta variant. So there's always a a real tension between safety for everybody, all of the stakeholders, including the judges and the respondents and their attorneys that must come to court with the technological advances advances, and how we should um, let the two work together to resolve the matters that are pending before us. We are speaking with Mimi Sankoff. She's president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. There's also a technological component to supporting judges. What's going on with the case flow management system designed, in theory, to help out the whole process? We're really concerned about the case flow management process. And let me just back up for a minute and let you understand why we're so concerned. Immigration judges preside over hearings and do so in order to fulfill their constitutionally mandated responsibilities to provide due process to the respondents that appear before them. In order to do that well and accurately, they need to know their case as well. The bottom line with caseful management is that it it essentially outsources a lot of the prep work for a case to legal assistants and judicial law clerks. So the judges themselves sometimes don't even see a case until it's ready for a merits hearing, a full hearing. And that means that the judge is only just getting access to the details of that case as they're approaching the full hearing rather than all of those initial um, status type conferences that would lend lend well to better understanding of the facts and circumstances surrounding that case. Yeah. So have they offered any fixes or roadmap to get that system updated so that it gives you the timely information? Because I imagine that would help maybe chew away at the backlog a little bit if you had more timely information well ahead of the hearings. You mentioned the backlog and to the extent that we can create efficiencies in the system, such as through improved management structures, that's usually a good thing. Um, However, this particular process doesn't seem to be designed to uh, really affect, really take into consideration the due process elements there's so many individuals that want that have other forms of relief that they're eligible for. And if you're not holding master calendar hearings, the judge is going to be faced with a really difficult situation. They're going to go to a hearing that's scheduled as a full merits hearing, and they have performance metrics that they're subject to, which require that they complete those hearings very quickly in order to continue to keep their jobs and not be disciplined. But at the same time, those respondents may actually have other forms of relief they could have been pursuing. And the case would ideally, if it had been handled in a measured way in uh, with a number of status conferences prior to the ultimate merits hearing, 
there, there might have been good reasons to delay that full merits hearing. So you, you sometimes lose efficiencies by setting a case too quickly to a merits hearing when there's really a reasonable resolution that can be handled through a status conference. All right. So you have the pandemic, you have the backlog, you have the issue with what the status of the agency will be vis-a-vis whether it wants the union to be in place. How do the judges keep going? Sounds like a difficult life you all have. It is really very challenging, but fortunately, the immigration judges love their work. It is extremely fulfilling to be able to consider the cases of the people who oftentimes are applying for relief in the form of asylum. They want protection from their home countries or they are eligible for something called cancellation of removal. There are various forms of relief that judges have the authority to grant. And despite all of the difficulties, of which there are many, those days when you're able to grant relief to people is an extremely rewarding experience. And for all of these reasons, I would say that as challenging as it's been, and as much as you know, morale among the immigration judges has really been challenged, especially during the pandemic, I can say that those positive days are really valued. And that's why we keep so many people in this role. And what does it take to become an immigration judge? Do you need to be an attorney? And do you need, I imagine, to understand an extremely arcane section of law? In order to become an immigration judge, you basically need two or three things. Number one, you have to have seven years of practice as an attorney. And secondly, you have to essentially have one of two things. That is either a background in immigration law so that you fully understand uh, this area of the law, which as you mentioned is arcane, or you likely have to have a lot of judicial experience because we have a lot of veterans who've had a lot of of, um, experience as judges in the military. And so we get all of those individuals and either we have to teach them the judging part or we teach them the immigration part. And it usually works out well in the end. And of course, you're calling from Manhattan, which is where your jurisdiction happens to be. Did it ever occur to you, you could walk down the street, get a nice of counsel job in one of the 10 billion law firms there and triple your salary? I love my work. I have had my own practice. Um, And I can tell you that it is extremely fulfilling. I am such a cheerleader for the immigration judge role. I hold so many positions within the community because I'm an immigration judge. I work with the American Bar Association, the Federal Bar Association, the National Association of Women Judges, the International Association of Women Judges. I'm a professor at Fordham as an adjunct professor at Fordham. I am committed to working in this realm in the public sector and finding ways to better the process for those that interface with it. Well, at least at Fordham, you get a chance to get beyond Uptown once in a while. Actually, no, because the Fordham Law School is at Lincoln Center. Ah, okay. So you're back to Midtown. All right. Well, great to have you on either way. Mimi Sankov is president of the National Association of Immigration Judges. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. 
Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? 
you have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I, I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, w- WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time.
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.